Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. You've heard us talk many times before on this program about big gear training. Many of you probably incorporate it into your riding for a variety of reasons. What's surprising is how little research has been done on this low cadence, high torque form of training. Even the definition of what constitutes low cadence remains a bit hazy. And there are as many ways of incorporating this into your workouts as there are coaches. Some do it threshold, some do it sub-threshold, five minutes, 20 minutes. There are many possibilities and just as many philosophies out there. So today we take a closer look at big gear work. What does the research literature actually say about performance gains and adaptations? What have elite coaches discovered through practice? Are coaches employing something their gut tells them works? And the research has simply yet to catch up? We will explore. Our guest today is Neil Henderson, head of sports science at Wahoo, and someone who in his spare time coaches many elite athletes at the world tour level. Neil is one of those coaches who routinely uses big gear work with most of his athletes, from track riders to time trialists, including world champion Rowan Dennis. We also hear from Sebastian Weber of Inside and Jim Miller at USA Cycling, two other highly experienced coaches who utilize big gear workouts with their athletes with great success. Finally, we hear how pro Petrovac coach incorporates big gear work into his training. All right, put it in the 5311, let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Trevor, I know you've been wearing a Whoop strap for years, and it sounds like the 3.0 is a much improved product. I am really impressed with the 3.0. Yeah, I used the 2.0 for a bit, which was actually yours, that I lost at an airport. So Shame I, on you. So I got the 3.0, and, and any niggling issues I had with the 2.0 have been worked out. Battery lasts longer. But what I'm really impressed by after I got it, I started downloading some workouts to compare it to a chest strap. And I have now used multiple wrist-based heart rate monitors and this is the first one i've personally seen where it is getting heart rate as good as a chest-based chest strap so it is accurate the heart rate variability every once in a while at the 2.0 i got some wonky numbers this just seems to to give a a more realistic more accurate reading of my heart rate variability they have worked out anything that i would think was a, a king in the 2.0 What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com 
and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Loop. Well, Neil Henderson, it's great to have you back on Fast Talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Always enjoy having you. Thank you. And uh, this is a topic I think you're pretty familiar with working with athletes of uh, across the spectrum from some of the best in the world tour to um, masters athletes, amateurs of all kinds uh, throughout your career. So we're really excited to dig into this topic of big gear training or low cadence training or low cadence high torque training, whichever uh, terminology you want to use. Uh, this is um, one of those areas where maybe there isn't a ton of research, but a lot of coaches are using it. Um, it has potential value, and that's what we want to discuss today. So I think let's just start out by saying I think you and I are both big fans of low cadence training or big gear training. I know I give it to my athletes. I've heard you many times say, describing workouts where you have your athletes, particularly your, your time trial athletes, do low cadence work. So am I, am I jumping the gun here or making an assumption saying that you're a fan? Absolutely. It's a part, of the, part of the tools that we have to help improve performance. One of the areas, you know, what I worked a lot with our, our track riders, you know, with Taylor and with our, our women's team pursuit program and, and other folks on the track is, well, there's an absolute component of big gear training that's necessary for performance in, in our uh, time trial efforts, other than the sprint, the flying 200, we have that standing start and your gear limited. And so even in the hour record, you know, there's a little bit of a component of big gear work to get up to speed, you know, in those first 10, 10, 15 seconds or so. When we refer to this low cadence work, how low are we talking about just to define things? And, and it, maybe this comes from the literature. Yeah, I, I would say most of the literature, when we think about like big gear work, you know, they typically are going somewhere 40 to 60 RPM with often 50, 60 RPM being a, a pretty uh, typical range. I do consider a bigger range though, uh, in that in that aspect of a standing start, you are actually at zero RPM for a, a minute, brief, uh, instantaneous uh, portion at the beginning. And so even 10, 20, 30, 40 RPM are components of, of that kind of big gear work that even many power meters, unfortunately, uh, the cadence isn't even uh, picking up at those low cadence levels. And so we actually have less data to look at when we look at uh, power cadence data over time, uh, we kind of have to extrapolate back on the, on a straight line of the, the kind of the, the, the torque velocity, uh, to, to assume what that peak torque was because the, uh, the monitors and meters are not picking up the values that low of a cadence, but that is still an important part of things. And there is actually, uh, something close to an official definition. So we'll go a little more into this review in a minute, but um, Dr. Ronstead, a very respected researcher, did a review in 2017 of all the studies on low cadence work. And he said, well, we need to define it. Mm -hmm. And he even said, you know, part of the issue is all these studies they looked at had different definitions. So his definition was interesting, which is low cadence work is, can, can be considered anything below 80 RPM. Mm which is a little yeah. higher, but he did say what's interesting is it depends on the effort because as cyclists put out higher and higher power, their natural cadence gets higher and higher. So if you're doing a maximal effort, 
80 RPM is actually low. If you're doing a pretty easy ride, no 80 RPM isn't that low. That's actually going to be closer to your maximal cadence. So he said the definition is actually going to change. It's, it can increase with increasing wattage, which I found really interesting, but it is a good point. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to put out 1,600 watts at 60 RPM. <laughs> right, right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, there's some interesting aspects there. And there's actually another study that I looked that I've uh, seen before where they were looking at it as a percentage of uh, the, the kind of preferred cadence for a given effort. And so, you know, we do know in, in sprinting, you know, typically 110 to 130 RPM is where humans generate the peak power possible. So we're talking, you know, we'll say an average around 120 RPM, but if you're thinking about VO2 max or max aerobic power, then that's probably closer to generally 90 to 100 RPM. And then that FTP or threshold power is often going to occur at a, a little bit lower uh, sustained cadence. There's again, situational things, whether it's uphill or on a flat uh, that may have some impacts there. But for me, one thing that I've started to look at a little bit more is looking at it relative to the preferred cadence for the, the kind of effort. And so uh, looking and describing that, that cadence relative to a percentage of the preferred cadence or the target cadence for an effort um, is another way to, to think about that. Another question I have on the physics here we talk about this as low cadence, and sometimes we add the term high torque. Is that always the case? So the lower your cadence, to, so if your power is consistent, the lower the cadence, necessarily the higher your torque. Yep. Yep, because power is torque times velocity, effectively. Yep. A newton meter per second right. is a watt. Just wanted to lay that out there honestly you know get the yep. Yep. those two yep. components here together and, and so we have the, the the right terminology i guess and and understand our terms and if you really want to dive into the biomechanics all i can say is give me an hour because i need to go and review all my <laughs> class notes <laughs> jim miller head of elite athletics at usa cycling knows how to get the best out of cyclists Let's hear what he has to say about low cadence training and if he uses it with his athletes. I've gone back and forth on this for a long time. Uh, early in my career, I used it a lot and then I totally went away from it. And then I've, I've come back to it probably the last five or six years. Um, so I, I incorporate uh, quite a bit of it. Um, it's, it's primarily, and really it's, it's for mountain bike racers, right? Cause it's, it's torque based. I do a pretty good chunk of it while I'm doing that zone two training as well. So in the November, December, January, February, we'll, we'll do a lot of strength endurance. Typically I do uh, seven by 10, 10 by 10, uh, nothing, nothing fancy uh, as they progress into it. And we, we get closer to moving into threshold type intervals. Then I'll add a 30 second spin up to the end of each interval. So when you get to the, to the last 30 seconds of, of each rep, you just spin that gear up as high as you can, um, which is just drives more torque. Uh, I do a lot of seated, seated efforts for mountain bike riders, mountain bike racers, a lot of seated sprints, a lot of seated Tabatas, uh, but that's all, it's all the same torque generation. And actually you mentioned something 
should have brought this up earlier, but I'll quickly bring this up now. It is important that everybody understands big gear training or low cadence training is not strength work on a bike. A lot of people think of it that way, but think about if you went into the gym, you were going to do bicep curls. How much weight would you be picking up if you said, I'm going to do a 20 minute set of bicep curls, doing it 60 times per minute, you're picking up, what, a five-pound weight, a three-pound weight? Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes people would refer to these rides as weights on bike rides or some or some variation thereof, but you're saying not to think of it that way. There right. really isn't a equivalent uh, adaptation from this type of work compared to gym work. Right. Now, one of these seven studies explored that and actually compared low-cadence training to strength training mm -hmm. and showed, no, not the same benefits. You don't see the same effects that you see from strength training. But there is an asterisk to this. Uh, the one place where you do see similarities, not quite the same but pretty close, is going out and doing like sprint work at an insanely high gear. So it's like a 20-second effort. So I actually do this workout. I do a 20-second sprint on an 8% climb in a 53.11. And if I hit 30 RPM. From a dead start, do you do that? Or? I'm moving slightly. Otherwise, yeah. the bike would just Very fall slow. over. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but that they showed that actually, because you're, you're producing maximal torque, that is a little more like strength like training. Poor man's leg press or something. Right. Yeah, so I would say the standing start type of thing is a is a concept there. So if you think about you know the the torque being applied, somebody's riding along it, you know, again solid effort here. Let's just say three hundred watts and ninety RPM. That's about a thirty two newton meter torque being applied. That's you know not crazy, but uh, when you think about what that force is, uh, you know it's you know thirty two newtons moved over one meter in a second. Um, if you take away then the gravity, that's, you know, not a lot of, of pounds or, or, or uh, newtons of force being applied, um, kilograms of force, you know, probably like six pounds or so into the pedal at that level. But when we get into a standing start, you know, we can see peak torque in excess of a, of a thousand newton meters. And so that's where there's potentially that strength requirement and i can tell you from from riding on the track and and uh looking at what a track sprinter like a team sprint start uh the starter there has to produce a phenomenal amount of force and so it's it's a very specialized case study but that's about the only time you're really going to see any strength otherwise it's truly a muscular endurance type of thing that we're talking about with with our big gear training yeah and sorry the story i have to quickly share the hill where i love to do this work it's actually very close to where you live neil um, I was doing this a couple weeks ago and there was a garage band practicing on the driveway of this one house. <laughs> and I noticed after a couple reps, every time I'd go up this hill, they'd just kind of stop playing and watch me. Cause I'm sure I'm just moving this bike around in ridiculous ways, grunting and groaning and just looking absolutely ridiculous on my bike. And they're probably just going, what is wrong with that guy? It's, it's too bad they didn't play something that really, you know, like got you I was excited. Yeah, yeah. Like some yeah. Like Come on, ACDC. Give death me something metal good. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
or to slow it down and try to get that perseveration (laughs) cadence to it and have like that little bit of an increase from, you know, a a very low tempo to slightly higher. (laughs) That would have been pretty rad. Yeah. I'd pay to see that. Actually, I had a question for you. So when you do those efforts, are they always out of the saddle for you? Or do you play around with both standing start type effort or those sprint type efforts out of the saddle as well as in the saddle or exclusively one or the other? I have played with both. Mm-hmm. So obviously, 8% grade in a 53.11 is impossible seated. You're just not going to yep. get the pedals over. So I have to use nope, a slightly easier gear. gear. So I will do it both with an easier gear, where it's, again, you know the biggest gear I can possibly ride. Sometimes it's just, yeah, I want to get out of the saddle and just try to break my bike. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And that's what we say on the track, you know, when you're doing a standing start, imagine you're trying to break your bike, uh, which is why we use a thicker chain often on the track. For, other than endurance riders, they, they usually will stick with a uh, little bit the, yeah, the no. lighter chain. It, but, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you... for, for me, when I look at that kind of stuff, we do like seated starts first. So seated starts, big gear, seated, thinking about like maintaining core strength and stability and that form as you accelerate and then we get into that more coordinated with the upper body movement and then move into then other more endurance related so i kind of do almost a reverse uh the maximum recruitment first but i do it seated just to just to get the body ready for a little bit heavier strength training so i think of like a seated start effort in that big gear as like uh, kind of pre-weight training and then the full standing start is that kind of maximal like heavyweight training and then I move into the more endurance type of work. Yeah. I tend to personally, I'm with my athletes in the winter when I wanted to do some neuromuscular work, that's when I have them do it seated. When I'm trying mm-hmm. to get that last little bit of form before a race, that's where I'm like, yeah, get out of the saddle, break the bike. Axe it out. And also apologize, Matt. I was like, I will buy you a new chain. Sorry. I was going to say, yeah, you're going to have to replace chains if you're doing lots of stands or lots of starts in those big gear up the hill. Well, I, I, you know, it's interesting because one time I did see you break your bike. Yeah, Chris actually saw this. (laughs) It it wasn't exactly the bike. It was the handlebar. It wasn't exactly during one of these types of efforts, but it was from a standing start and you were trying to go fast. Chris and I were racing up Flagstaff. In fact, we were doing what what some people will call Neil Henderson's protocol for the... We were, uh, that's right. And we were on your 20-minute effort. Yep. And of course... No, it was a five-minute effort. It was the five-minute effort. On the five, okay. (laughs) And guess what Trevor did after he broke his handlebars, Neil? Let's see. I, I I hope he switched bikes and, and just went and did it all <laughs> You don't know Trevor very well, do you? He kept riding. I discovered oh, the handlebar no. tape actually held my handlebars together fairly well. <laughs> oh, geez. Did you ride down Flagstaff like that? Yes. Yes, I, I did. I don't want to know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah scary, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> He's still alive. He's still on this podcast. So he, he made it that day. All right. All right. I wouldn't know. recommend it, but you no. know. Don't do what Trevor does. Do what he says, not what he does. I, I actually learned last week I, I have to start being careful about this stuff because on Facebook I posted this video. I, I have a I'm playing with this new camera, one of those cameras on your bike, so I'm kind of loving. So I've been recording some of my rides, and I posted a short video of a truck almost killing me, which a whole bunch of people commented on. 
And then unfortunately, my mom was like, Trevor, what was this? <laughs> and I just went, oh, that wasn't smart. <laughs> yeah. Unfriend your mom from Facebook, A. Yep. <laughs> B. Try to break your bike. Just don't break yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Don't actually And break if it. you do, <laughs> don't lesson. keep riding it. Yeah. <laughs> Something that really surprised me getting ready for this episode is, is again, I'm a huge fan of, of big gear training or, or low cadence training. So... I just kind of assumed there's going to be a ton of research on this. And I didn't have a ton of time to prepare. So when I'm in that situation, what I do is I initially do my PubMed search, find what studies I can find. Hopefully a review pops up. And then the cheap method is you go into the review, you look at its references and download sure. all the studies right. that it has. So I did this. I found five or six studies myself and went, well, that's not enough. Uh, and one of them was a review this review by Dr. Ronstead. So I went, great. You know, this is a 2017 review, fairly recent, so I'm sure he's going to have a bunch of references. And you, first page of the review, he says, we did a big PubMed search, found 220 studies, and of those, seven were usable mm -hmm. or met our criteria. And I looked at his list of seven, and I looked at the studies I found, and it was the exact same list. There you go. Confirmation. You had done your homework. More surprising because that's never happened to me before. And that could only happen really if there is just a lack of research, mm -hmm. which is the case here. And part of what motivated this is one of our listeners emailed us asking about this. Um, and when you go to the conclusions of this Ronstead study, he says, we cannot conclude there is a benefit to low cadence training. But when you dive into the details, he basically says that's because there are seven studies. Two of them were like sprint work at low cadence. Others were longer interval type work. Some were with pros, some were with amateurs. The range of cadences were hugely different. Some of them didn't have a control group. And he hmm. basically said, there's too much variance here, not enough research to draw a conclusion. So he wasn't saying, no, it doesn't benefit you. He just said there isn't enough actual science. Right. But confirmed. Yep. One study that I read several years ago, which I love, is this 2011 longitudinal study by, I'm going to butcher this, Nimmer Itcher. <laughs> <laughs> Who, so he had a 2011 study, and then he followed that up with actually a specific study in 2012 just on low cadence training. But the 2011 study was a, a longitudinal study where he got all the Stra Strava data for an entire year of every athlete on Strava. That's a whole lot of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he compared the data of elite athletes, so top pros, to amateurs to see what were the differences. And there were some really interesting differences. It's a great study. I've talked about it before. But one of the biggest ones he discovered was that your top cyclists spent a lot of time doing low cadence work. So what this is shaping up to, in my opinion, when you read the Ronstead review and you look at that longitudinal study, is this is a case where coaches and athletes have discovered something that's beneficial and this, the research hasn't caught up. But Neil, what's your opinion? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's 
a, not a ton of research that is out there that, you know, can show a benefit or actually show any detriment or no change because there are so few studies. And we often find in sports science that honestly, it's the practice that kind of leads the way, you know, cause we're looking for performance when I'm coaching an athlete, whether a study says something is beneficial or not, or whether there aren't 10 studies that support doing something, if we find a benefit in performance and how an athlete, uh, you know, performs after doing certain types of training, I'm going to continue to do that with that athlete. And so in some cases we see the sports science kind of follows behind what has been in practice, um, in terms of a practical realm of, of where we've seen, you know, what kind of workouts have been done in training that then might be associated with that performance. It's hard to say, you know, guaranteed cause effect, you know, this workout means, you know, that kind of improvement that's, that's kind of like, uh, really difficult to, to, to truly get to that level of, of specificity and confirmation. But when we see those associations with doing certain types of training and performances, then, you know, as a, as a practical side of things, I'm going to keep doing things that work, you know, don't fix it if it isn't broken. And that makes complete sense. We've seen that a lot. And, and, uh, I like the way you put that, that, you know, that sort of the, the sports science trails behind sometimes, and it doesn't, you know, to coaches, to athletes, when performance is the ultimate test of what works and what doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the science says in every case. It's nice when it does confirm it. It's nice when it eventually <laughs> you have that confirmation of a gut feeling. But going going back to the, the Ronstadt review, it wasn't conclusive that it had benefits, but what were the, some of the, there were some, probably some trends that came out of that, some patterns that he was seeing. So the biggest trend that he saw that he followed us up with, and Neil, I think this is one you're going to jump on because I know you work with time trialers and use a lot of big gear work with them. So he did say there was evidence in several of the studies that, um, it seemed to help time trial performance. And one of the most interesting ones was there was a study that looked at both hill and flat time trial performance. So they had a group that was doing interval work at a high cadence and a group that was doing the same protocol but at low cadence. So the same percent of, of threshold, same length intervals, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference was the cadence. And what they found was when they, they put them on a ramp test, you saw similar improvement. You also saw improvement in time trial performance, but in the low cadence group, you saw improvement in both flat and climbing time trial performance, and you didn't see that in the high cadence group. Yeah, there's some potentially interesting things of actually on-road pedaling at a low cadence, even at the same power on a climb versus on the flat. If you think about a climb, you have that constant gravity uh, working against you. Um, and the, the velocity of the rider and, and bike is pretty low. And so if you think of the momentum there, there's a, there's a relatively low momentum. And so the peak torque even for that same power and, and lower cadence, let's just say on a, cape, on a climb, might be a little bit different than the peak torque that can be applied when you think of a flat road with the same cyclist at the same power in the same big gear low cadence there might be a little bit higher instantaneous torque applied because of the momentum 
and what's going on there. So if you think of the area under the curve of uh, basically the torque versus the amount of time that that is being applied into the pedal could elicit some differences um, in, in what happens in training with a big gear in, in those different situations. Here's a good example of a very good coach intuiting what actually has been shown in the science. So I love that you bring that up because Ronstead didn't reference this study, but there was a study led by Bertucci in 2005 that compared um, climbing to flats and said exactly what you're saying, that uh, on climbing, there's higher peak torque and the torque profile is different, that you see the torque being put out um, through a broader range of the pedal stroke. Mm -hmm. So on the flats, you tend to not really put out torque through the bottom of the pedal stroke. On the climb, you see torque continuing through the bottom of the pedal stroke and starting sooner over the top. But what was really interesting about this study is they said, is that because of gravity or something else? So they did a control where they had these athletes then climb, but climb at a high cadence. So the same sort of cadence they would do on the flats and all the differences that you saw in climbing disappeared. So they basically said, yes, there's difference in the torque profile climbing, but it's more due to the fact that you tend to climb at low cadence. Yep. And that's going to then affect your, your fiber recruitment, right? Yep. So all these things kind of working in concert, you know, it's so hard to isolate one single component, even if we think of, you know, the simplest aspect of, you know, power equals that torque times cadence effectively. Um, the situation of how that, that torque is being applied even can be pulled out and potentially have differential effects. So that actually leads to the, the next big question where I know we're going to be doing a little bit of guesswork here. Uh, and certainly you, you read even the recent studies they are kind of saying, well, we think this, we think that nobody said, here's definitely the benefits. What do you think physiologically are the benefits of low cadence work? And, and you mentioned one, the fast twitch recruitment. You're going to have definitely an increase. So if you think about, you know, the, the way I think about training in some ways, we kind of initiate the movement, um, in cycling, it's a little bit easier of a sport because we're constrained, you know, the, the crank goes in a circle. And so like the form and technique is a bit different than something like swimming or, or uh, running or a golf swing. So it's a little bit more constrained movement, but there's still some bit of coordination of movement in that initiation that's important. And so the second component to that is a recruitment and recruiting that muscle fiber. Uh, what, what you're trying to target is going to vary uh, based on the speed and the force. And effectively, if you're looking for maximum recruitment of any given muscles, your highest velocity can induce maximal recruitment, your highest torque or force, or the product of those two in, in some middle ground is going to be then kind of like, say, peak power is some middle ground, not at the highest torque, nor at the highest velocity, but kind of the in-between of those. Um, for me, that's a big part of the big gear work that we are recruiting then a greater amount of, of muscle fiber and especially a lot of times more that fast twitch and trying to go from a basically a, a type uh, 2B or glycolytic fast fiber to a type 2A fast oxidative uh, fiber is part of that. And then our next element 
for the way I look at things is a sustainability and being able to hold a given effort longer. And so a force and, and kind of a fatigue profile, a lot of times what we see is a, a reduction in the force that can be sustained over time. And so being able to sustain that force for longer is going to allow for, for performance. And then finally, uh, there's a component that I look at of being able to repeat a, a given effort or, or a repeating effort. So if we look at like last year's time trial course in Yorkshire, we had these, you know, series of, of very steep climb efforts uh, towards the end of the race. And so it was, for, for success, you had to be able to continue to repeat pushing that that high force um, and high power, uh, even though there's preloaded fatigue from all the earlier segments. So the recruitment aspect is a big part of it. And the sustainability aspect of being able to sustain that force production is why I tend to look at the value of incorporating big gear work. And there's a few ways we can can achieve that. Again, interesting. In the Ronstadt review, he, he hypothesized a few potential ways that you're seeing the gains, and very similar to what you just said. It's neuromuscular side, it's recruiting fast twitch muscle fibers and getting them to work more aerobically. If fast twitch muscle fibers can work aerobically, they're not going to fatigue as quickly. So exactly what you said, you're going to have that greater sustainability. It's, uh, it's pretty fun when you kind of put together the pieces of a puzzle and have it make sense in some way. Yeah, and when you see some of that, you know, what's been done in practice, and then when you start to see some bit of, you know, potential uh, mechanisms why, when when we have great researchers like Rana said and others that are starting to look and, and peel back the layers and why does this work, or, you know, it's being done, right? And so why and, and how does it work? What are the mechanisms? That's to me is a pretty exciting, side of things. I promise or sort of promise this will be the last study I bring up. Okay. One other interesting <laughs> study that came out in 2019. So this is after the Ronstadt review. And actually this study starts very early on by referencing the Ronstadt review. Saying, Hopefully it has a good author name that is hard to pronounce. You just like doing that to me, don't you? Like, I want to know the spelling uh, of that Nimmer, Nimmer oh, church or geez. whatever. Okay, here we go. Do I want to attempt the first author or the, oh, they're just both awful. Try both. <laughs> Let's hear both of them. Lawrence Ola Asvoid as the first author. And my sincerest apologies for, I know I just butchered that. <laughs> and for the last author, Krut Stoverange. Mm, nice. Well, how do you spell Stoverange? For oh, those wait, who... Scoverange. Scoverange. S-K-O-V-E-R-E-N-G. Chris yeah. likes torturing me oh. with names because I can't pronounce any of them. <laughs> Just we mean. Got, we got we to gotta add a little humor to a, uh episode every once yes. in a while, right? Yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I, I truly appreciated that. <laughs> they had actually a really unique theory behind this, which is there is evidence... So sorry, let's take a quick step back. They are able to determine your, your joint contribution to power output. So if you're putting out, say, 300 watts, what percentage of that's coming from the ankle? What percentage is coming from the knee? What percentage is coming from the hip? And it has been demonstrated that you see a greater contribution from the hip in pros versus amateurs. So there's just this neuromuscular training 
and they're better able to use their hip. And your hip is a stronger joint, so that is a benefit. It means you're going to be able to put out better power if you're using the hip more than the knee. What they show is ankle is just consistent. You're always putting out about, I think it was like 9%, 9, 10% from your ankle. So just ignore that. It's that knee-to-hip ratio. And it's more towards the hip and pros. What they showed in this study is as cadence increases from 60 RPM on, you see greater and greater contribution of the knee and less and less contribution of the hip. So what they concluded in this study is at lower cadences, you can simulate greater hip contribution, which is a a wanted adaptation, they're saying, without necessarily having to work as hard. So with, at, at lower wattages, you can get a training adaptation that, other, that you could only otherwise get at high intensity. I'm trying to simplify this. It actually took me, I had to read it twice to kind of fully get what they were saying, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely understand and can see that. Here's an interesting thing that I've seen a little bit looking at, uh, I've done some like slow motion video and some other uh, technologies kind of looking at the pedal stroke in a, in a big gear versus a, a small gear at the same power. We do it, you know, more often on the trainer just because we can isolate things a little bit easier and look at things, but occasionally. So if you, if you think about, you know, as you push down on the, on the pedal, uh, you want to have what, what we often call is triple extension of hip extension, knee extension, and then, uh, at the ankle, um, the, uh, the extension there. And so when all three of those things are occurring at once, that's triple extension, right? So that's going to allow more force to be put into the pedal. On occasion, I've seen some folks where when they're doing the big gear work, they're only having extension at the hip and the knee. And what we see is that kind of ankle collapse because they don't actually have the potential to produce the, the force to hold the ankle stable. And so in those cases, that, that often means that, you know, that individual needs to work on a little bit of a, that ankle extension um, strengthening so that they don't have that basically heel dropping too far below um, the toe. Because in effect, in effect, you're losing some of the power through the... Correct. The, the... Yes. And, you know, in running, you know, you can get a spring action from like your, your say, the Achilles tendon, right? You know, in running, that's totally different, the dynamic. In cycling, there's no way we're producing the kind of force that we're going to get kind of a recoil um, at the, you know, at any point from the, from the tendons. So we want to be able to have then that, that stability and maintain that, that ankle joint, if not then extend it, um, rather than kind of fall into a flexion and lose power. What about any other benefits here to this big gear work? Uh, any, I see on our list of things to discuss lactate clearance, any evidence to suggest that this could help with that. Yeah, I, I would say kind of lactate flux is the, the term that I like to use, okay. uh, because we kind of know it's not a, it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to enhance that rate of, of both production and, and utilization uptake, etc. And so again, when you start to get into that higher force, you are going to recruit more of those fast glycolytic fibers. And so you are going to have much greater lactate flux for, for that effort. So that's definitely a plus um, in that one other thing that I actually use this for is uh, controlling both heart rate and respiration um, as well. So 
we live at altitude, right? And so when I have somebody who comes up here from sea level and they're just starting in the first efforts I'm gonna have them do often is a little bit bigger gear work for a given power because that's gonna keep their heart rate and breathing rate down. When somebody's doing you know, harder work, that respiration rate is much higher with elevation, or if somebody's just getting back into training, even if they're at sea level and their cardiovascular fitness is kind of not quite as good, we'll start off with a little bit more of that big gear to kind of get that same recruitment because you can get the same force being produced or even a little bit higher than threshold or FTP in those type of efforts, even if we're working a bit below threshold, even if we're at say uh, 80, 85, maybe even 90% of their threshold power, if we slow that cadence down, we're still getting a very similar type of force recruitment that we would at that threshold or even above in some cases. So there's some benefits there actually, uh, had, I've had clients too that have you know crashed and broken ribs, and again breathing always sucks uh, when you break when you break your ribs. But if they're riding the trainer, we can do a little bit of that big gear work, which keeps the respiration rate down. Um, you have to teach them, you know, make sure they're not gripping the bars and pulling and yanking hard. That they try to use that core stability, stabilize, and just do piano hands on the bars. But doing that big gear like that will help them continue to to keep that kind of fitness and that kind of torque being applied into the pedals that they wouldn't be able to do uh, or would be less comfortable doing at a higher cadence with a higher respiration rate and breathing rate. So uh, another area that we, you know, find to be a little bit beneficial there. And that's actually a really important thing to be aware of if you've never done big gear work before and you decide to go out and do intervals is you will see your heart rate be 10 beats per minute lower for a given wattage. And I I at a time where I forgot to tell an athlete that when I gave him the workout for the first, I felt so bad because <laughs> he sent me this note. He's like, I was absolutely killing myself, but I just couldn't get my heart rate up. <laughs> oh, man. I looked yeah. at the power and I was like, I am so sorry. <laughs> yep, your heart rate will not get up. Just can't be done. Sebastian Weber, the head physiologist at Insight, also sees benefits to low cadence work. He discussed with us both those benefits and the fact that there's a variety of ways of doing this type of work. The first one, I, I'm really excited to ask you this one. We want to do an episode on big gear training so that training at... Then you need to ask Germans. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> Which, look, I love big gear training. What is your feeling on big gear training? What is the benefits? And I know the first thing you're going to ask me is, what's the intensity? <laughs> Yeah, uh, exactly. What's the, what's the training? I mean, you can, I mean, most commonly it's used for either a kind of acceleration, standing starts kind of stuff, uh, where you talk more about max power, maybe. That's obviously one common thing to, from a practical point of view, work on your acceleration for a race, for example. So that's one implication, how you want to use big gears normally. And then the other implication is more from a, in Europe, they often call it like strength endurance kind of work. I'm not even sure if this is a term actually. But you look at more like lower RPMs, 50, 55, 60 RPMs, or sometimes even below 50 in extreme cases for a longer period of time, most cases below below threshold, um, which is you know a highly successful training for increasing your endurance, increasing if you want to use this global term strength. Um, without going too much into the weeds here, into the details. Um, it is one of the main trainings you can do or you you know, you know can expect to see your VLA max or your glycolytic system drop, especially if the intensity is a little bit higher. 
And then this is one, one training which can really mess up your quality and can really mess up your position or your knees and things like that. Um, so we always use it in the professional world, um, splitting it up, like doing big years, but not for several minutes on block, but, but splitting it up and adding a, adding a technique focus on it as well. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set. Whoop is offering 50% off with the code FASTTALK, that's F-A-S-T. T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with whoop. You raised something in there, Neil, when you're describing about uh, technique. I wonder if it's worth... I mean, we're going to get to the practical side here in just a second, but I wonder if it's worth describing proper technique here for big gear work. In terms of knees collapsing, should you be really yanking with your upper body or should you try to let your, you know, I think you alluded to the fact that you want to be light on the handlebars and try to use your core and your legs and hips to do the work. So maybe help us understand proper technique here. Yeah. So one of the things I think about is posture. So again, the, the cranks move in a circle, you know, you push down, they go in a circle, but your legs don't, you know, necessarily go up and down like a piston unless you have good, say, glute stability. And this is something you can focus on a little bit as you pedal at a little bit lower RPM than you would at, you know, 100 or 110 or 120 RPM. So thinking about both with like, say, transverse abdominus engagement, so you're not kind of getting that uh, roll back and posterior pelvic tilt that sometimes happens on a, on a bike that we get proper neutral uh, spinal alignment there and engaging those stabilizer muscles through core. And when I think of core, I'm thinking, you know, from above the knees to just, you know, below the chest, kind of that whole corset area. Um, and then as we start to pedal, you can think about what is happening with your knees and kind of going more straight up and down is generally better, better transfer of power and a little bit less wear and tear on your knees. And then upper body, same thing, kind of dropping those shoulders down and keeping a lighter grip on the bar. So that you're not just wrestling it. So you're trying to keep that motion predominantly coming from the hips down, keeping that upper body more relaxed and stable as you produce that power. Otherwise you're just you know, tensing and holding on and, and basically, you know, decreasing your efficiency by, by kind of contracting muscles that aren't really contributing to the work. Mm -hmm. Great. And one thing I always like to mention, you know, when people talk about 
cadence and things, there's always that the old ideas that the gross mechanical efficiency and that, you know, everyone is more efficient at a lower cadence. If we look at mm -hmm. the VO2 response for a given power and that's correct. And a big part of that is just the cost of respiration. If you're riding that, like say a, a VO2 max associated power um, effort level, your the, the act of getting the air in and out of your system, the respiratory cost is almost around 10% of the total VO2, just for billowing air in and out of your system. So if your VO2 max is 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute, about six of those are just your, your, all the respiratory muscles moving air in and out, hmm. which is pretty wild. So when we go to a lower cadence, that respiration rate drops. And so the efficiency, there would be a lowered cost for breathing since the respiration rate is lower for a given, for a slower cadence. So that's why the gross efficiency, gross mechanical efficiency goes up at a lower cadence. doesn't mean you can sustain it longer or anything like that. Right. And it is a, it is a U-shaped relationship. So it's that, yep. yeah, at very high cadences, you're going to see that, that VO. So if you held a power and just change cadences, um, you would see at higher cadence, uh, at higher cadences, you're going to see that, that cost go up. Uh, but interestingly, at very low cadences, you also see the cost go up. And, and one of the theories behind that is it's because you're recruiting a whole ton of fast twitch muscle fibers, which are less efficient. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, been some work done on like zero power uh, at various cadences and just, you know, you can see that oxygen cost change with zero watts. Yep. And so interestingly, yeah, they, they said the, the bottom of that U, so the, the lowest oxygen cost and, and the highest efficiency is between 40 and 80 RPM. Yep. And that's a big range actually. Yeah. That's because there is big individual variance and you tend to see it higher with pros. Yep. Well, now that we have discussed the potential benefits here and, 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 um, you know, the evidence in the literature suggests there's some benefits. Neil sounds like you've concluded there are definitely benefits. <laughs> Trevor, you see them too. Uh, let's talk about how to execute big gear work so that you get the most out of it and the different ways you can do that. Shall, shall we dive into that topic? Sure. Absolutely. Where to start? Um, th there's different ways to do it. There's ways you can uh, long, short, threshold, sub-threshold, above-threshold. What's your favorite, I guess, Neil, and, and why is it your favorite? Favorites, man. I have so many favorites. It's like ice cream flavors. So many favorites. <laughs> Here's one that I do that's, that's maybe atypical. It would be either a standing start or a seated start effort for generally about 20 seconds, and then going into a steady state effort around threshold or, or, or a steady effort near threshold. So the power is going to be much higher in those first 10, 15, 20 seconds during the acceleration phase. And then we go into holding some effort, let's just say between tempo and threshold is uh, for typically about two or three minutes. And so what this does, it has, you know, a few things. We have that recruitment, that force generation, and then going into a sustained effort and holding consistent K 
cadence there. And, and we may vary that, you know, I may do a little bit of continued in the big year over time. I'll have somebody do the start effort in the big year and then shift into what would be a more normal cadence, 90 or hundred RPM, and then hold, hold around threshold. Um, and these, you know, we don't do a ton of those. It might be four, six, eight reps at absolute maximum of that kind of work with pretty long recoveries between them because we want to have appropriate force production in that start effort. And we want it to be a near maximal 15 or 20 seconds start into that steady state. They're not easy, but they are effective. My only addition is make sure you have a garage band playing yawn. It's motivating. <laughs> yes. With, with progressive tempo during the start. Yes. <laughs> uh, absolutely would be the most wonderful way of doing those for sure. You know, if I think of a progression when I have, you know, if I had an athlete just kind of coming and starting training, the first thing I would do is a little bit of tempo, uh, three to five minute efforts that are more like 75 to 85% of, of threshold power at say 50 to 60 RPM um, with, you know, several minutes, three, four minutes recovered between those efforts, total of say, you know, 20 or so minutes of work is a kind of a, a, a starting point. And then I would move more into the seated start, into the standing start efforts. And those would be done just as typically 20 second efforts with full recovery, four, six, even eight minutes recovery between those. Uh, think of like a heavy, heavy, like power lifting set uh, type of recovery. And then I would move into sustained threshold or approximately FTP type efforts. Uh, at that, you know, 50, 60 RPM, three, four, five, six minute long efforts with typically about half time recovery, and then move into those start efforts into a sustained threshold at more normal cadence. And then I also have a progression that I use at kind of VO2 max or max aerobic power. And those we go a bit shorter efforts starting at, you know, even 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Um, at kind of that power associated with their, their VO2 max or kind of a lot of times the analogous about five minute power um, and doing equal to double time recovery for those and often doing them in sets, of sets like six times 30 seconds at the five minute power at 50 RPM with 90 seconds recovery between each effort and doing two or three sets like that. Now, interesting because we just had um, in Chris is really going to make fun of me for butchering this name. I apologize again, but Petter Vakoch. Vakoch. Yeah. Vakoch. Yeah. We had yeah. him on the show and he described that exact workout, that 30 oh. seconds. He said he, so he's like a hard, but not too hard wattage of around 550 watts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were like, you know, listeners solid. no, that's, that's actually really hard for the rest of us. Their minds just blew up. Let's actually hear Petter describe his workout. During the ergo session, I would do 12 times uh, 30 seconds on uh, low gear around uh, 60 RPM with uh, like what for me would be maybe, I don't know, 500, 550 watts. So Ooh, like pretty hard, not all out, but, but pretty hard. And it's like, certain types of, of the, of the, the fast, which, which fibers, I would say you, you should be able to, to recreate 
with that high tension low low gear and uh, this is something that it's really makes makes the training fun and and go really fast you will do this 12 times 30 seconds and uh, 90 seconds off and uh, yeah like if i if i do this then then the session is is gone really fast and it's something that it hurts a bit but not too much and uh, you have a good feeling afterwards Uh, and and i I think it's it's pretty beneficial for for the strength and for for training those type of fibers so so that's my favorite and it makes really the the time flies when you when you do this on the ergometer so so that's good now do you do it all seated or do you stand up at all i would try to do it mainly seated I think it's not necessary to do it purely seated, but but I am to do it seated. I'm, if I'm getting too tired, or you know, I do a little bit of like f- from the seat as well to have a vira- variety. But I would do the ma- majority seated. Okay. And how many sets would you do in a workout? I would do I would do usually just just one set. Okay. Of, of this. And the second question is, how many times a week are you doing that right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll, now I do it one to twice a week. It, it depends, like, I would say three times per, per two weeks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's benefits that you derive from doing things that are sometimes, you know, different than, you know, what, what we think of just standard training. You know, it's a lot of ways to, to, to elicit a response. You know, a lot of times it's not always about, you know, achieving, you know, the highest power for a given amount of time. It's, it's trying to elicit a response. Um, so you can do more the next time and continue to develop on that. And that's kind of one of the ways that I look at training, um, is that you're trying to elicit a response, not necessarily always the maximum output on any given session, but it's the response, not the load. A workout that I want to do a deeper dive into simply because we have gotten a ton of emails about this. And I do remember you describing this as a workout that you give to a lot of your time trial specialists is that just sub threshold low cadence work, which are longer intervals, anywhere from five to 20 minutes. What's your, and generally the question we get is, but that's not a threshold and they're time trialists. Why aren't they doing it at threshold? So let me throw that question to you. Yeah, definitely. So there's a, a, you know, aspects of, you know, why, you know, why do you reach your threshold? Well, there's a whole host of things, right? A lot of different responses going at once. But if we think of that lactate flux production and clearance, kind of the net result then is if we were looking at say a a venous blood lactate sample, Um, what's being produced, what's being cleared. When you go at threshold, you're pretty much right on that balance point of you're able to clear or utilize about as much as being as is being produced. If you go a little bit harder than that, then you start to see an accumulation, say of that that byproduct, that lactate level would accumulate a little bit. And so that point is also associated with a little bit of a higher level of stress hormone release when we start to push over threshold. And so when we think about then the, the, the stress and strain of that session is we're going to have more time required for recovery if we go over threshold as opposed to if we stay below that threshold. And so if we keep the power output associated below our threshold, but we go to a bigger gear, 
we're going to be pushing actually a, an effective force on the pedal stroke a little bit higher than threshold, though from a physiological standpoint in terms of heart rate and stress hormone release, it's going to be that below threshold type of response. And so we can get kind of a peripheral stress at the muscle that is equal to or maybe even slightly greater than threshold with a lowered physiological and endocrine stress. And so we can recover from that type of work more quickly and we can also accumulate more of it in a given amount of training time or, and be able to have those adaptations, those improvements occurring without having to take as much time to recover between another quality session. And so the density of work that can be done over time is also going to be better. I love how this is all circling back as well, because if you think back to that 2019 study where they said at lower cadence, you're, you're favoring hip recruitment. And you know more about the, the biomechanics than me, but my understanding is hip recruitment is critical for a time trialist. Absolutely. It's the big mover, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, if you don't have those at play, if they're not engaged and if they're not doing a lion's share of the work, it's not going to be sustainable. Yep. Getting that recruitment and, and training those patterns, you know, as we fatigue, we don't rise to the level of challenge. We fall to the level of our training. So this is a very interesting way, as you said, of really hitting a system in some ways you're actually hitting it harder or the, the systems that you want to train for time trial and you're hitting them harder than you would at a normal cadence at threshold, but because you're sub threshold, you're not getting the same stress and need for recovery that you would training at threshold or a little above threshold. Exactly. That's, it's almost like having your cake and eating it too. <laughs> nice. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> well, we're going to broadcast this to the world. So now everybody's going to do that. Ah, dang it. The secret's out. Yeah, well, if you have your cake and eat it too, your climbing time <laughs> traveling might suffer a little. That's true. We have had several guests, particularly pros on the show who have talked about when they climb, they actually like to alternate a lot. So they don't like to climb at their natural cadence when they're training. They like to vary between, I'm going to climb at a, a lower than normal cadence, and I'm going to swap yep. it up and climb at a higher than normal cadence. So Absolutely. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So a lot of times on a, on a climb, you know, we'll break things up um, and do that mix of, of big gear and small gear work during a continuous effort. So like one of my, uh, for the folks that live here in Boulder that, I, that I've worked with over time, every early July, we do a 10 times end car climb. And each one of those 10 repeats is different types of effort. So we do some steady state and then we do some 40, 20s, 30, 30s kind of standard stuff there. But two of the efforts we do are alternating big gear, small gear, either every minute or every two minutes. And still the effort is going to be somewhere just below threshold, but by forcing a bigger gear than you want for a minute and then switching to a smaller gear for a minute, um, it really changes the dynamic and the, and the stress and how that feels. And most people that gives them the most difficulty of any of the efforts, you know, 40, 20s or 30, 30s or steady state, they're totally good with. But when we play with that big gear and small gear during a consistent, say about 10 minute, eight to 10 minute effort, it really is a, a total, totally different, you know, wrench in the, in how it feels. And, and, uh, again, this, the response and what that can elicit, I can't tell you exactly, but there's clear benefits and we, and we do that um, 
in our training with, with athletes, you know, even a long climb, a 20 minute climb and breaking it into 30 seconds in a big gear and then 90 seconds, um, at their kind of like preferred cadence and then a minute in a smaller gear and kind of repeating through that cycle during the climb is, is a really good way of, again, eliciting a response, um, for, for a given type of power output or given climb and and spicing it up, breaking it up a little bit. Yeah. So, so Neil, knowing that you work a lot with really good time trialists, what are some technique, uh, What's the advice on technique when it comes to a time trialist using or incorporating this type of work into their training? Yeah, one thing that's really important is to, to think about the position. And so when you're doing these efforts, I, I don't want an athlete to be out on their base bars pushing, you know, a higher power trying to do it that way. I want them to be in the arrow bars holding that head position that they're trying to hold in that most aerodynamic setup for them, which again, everyone varies a little bit, but if they've done any testing in the wind tunnel or out on the road and they kind of know where that head position is to maintain all of those things, whether it's the the shrug with the shoulders or the turtle with the head, and then do that big gear work in that position and then recover in the bars as well. Relax in between those efforts, but still trying to hold the position, but maybe just a little bit more relaxed in the recovery in between. Something important to think about. I think you made Chris shudder when you mentioned NCAR. How many times did you climb that that one day? Oh, God, I don't know, like 75 times. Not the, fu- not, not the full thing, but we, we were doing the, the, um, the arrow, the super tuck study. Um, so oh, I was, speed. Yeah, we were trying to uh, figure out, you know, in a roll-down test, um, yeah. which was the best super tuck position. So just the steepest part of NCAR I was climbing yeah. that many times, yeah. Oh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I was 10 times in a day. We, and we start down at Lehigh. So it's a 2.75 kilometer climb approximately. Yeah. yeah. So 10 times. So it's a pretty solid amount of climbing on yeah. the day. So uh, Neil, what's your opinion on when people are going out and doing this? Um, how, how much time are they spending seated? How much time are they s- spent? Uh, should they spend standing up? What's your, what's your preference here? Yeah. Generally, when we're doing a lot of these type of uh, the big gear workout efforts, we want to have them be steeded rather than standing. Um, There's clearly some differences in in what happens when you're out of the saddle and standing um, than when you're seated. And so we're trying to get more of the recruitment of the glutes. And so in that seated position, we're going to have much better uh, recruitment there. When we stand up, we're going to involve that upper body a little bit more. And again, there's a time and place for that. So the, the standing start type of things or, or the big gear sprints clearly good for that. Uh, but more often than not, we're going to do the majority of this seated. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, th- one other thing we haven't really touched upon, I guess, is what, what part of the season would you be doing this? How often would you be doing this? Yeah, I, uh, Again, I come at things sometimes a little bit different than I would say is the, the maybe the standard. I do a little bit more in that reverse periodization of trying to get some of that higher recruitment early on. And some of that is also background and working with track cycling. Um, if you think of, you know, folks I've worked with over time, like uh, Taylor and, and Rowan, um, they were 
individual pursuiters first mm-hmm. and then switched into, you know, being able to develop that, that longer sustained time trial type of effort. But if we don't have that high end capacity to develop first, um, we have difficulty uh, in being able to extend a, a lower percentage of that. So for me, I do tend to start off more than with the, the start type efforts at that almost peak torque and peak force for shorter durations, and then progressively move into uh, the longer durations. Uh, and then I'll go back into the high power in that kind of max aerobic power. So a progression might be seated start efforts, 20 second efforts in the biggest gear possible with five or six minutes recovery between each, and then move into a similar session the following week that are standing starts instead of seated. And then after that, the week, uh, again, might just, let's just say doing one big gear workout a week, move into tempo efforts for three minutes at 85% of, of threshold at 50 to 60 RPM with two minutes recovery between and then move into threshold, say five by five minutes at say 95% of FTP at that same 50 to 60 RPM. And then go into a, uh, say two sets of six times 30 seconds at the five minute max power at 50 to 60 RPM, 90 seconds recovery with 10, 10 minutes easy in between those sets. That would be a, say a six or so week progression there if, if I can count correctly, which I probably can't. And what's the frequency per week, or does that really depend on the both the athlete and the uh, the particular workout? Generally, I do about one of these sessions a week at most two. Again, depending on on the person and what kind of work they're doing, but one at most two times a week because it is a bit more stressful from a, a musculoskeletal standpoint, giving adequate recovery. And I, I've never done blocks of back-to-back of uh, these kind of like two days in a row. I've never asked anyone to do. Maybe it could work, but I would, I think the risk versus reward on that might be a little bit too much. Yeah. Well, that, that brings up an interesting question about those that may have, I don't know, quote unquote, weak knees or weak ankles, things like that. Uh, what are some cautionary tales or what are some precautions people with those issues should take here? Yeah. Should they avoid yeah, it altogether? So, yeah. I, I am a firm believer in an appropriate strength and conditioning program. And so we, we do see often too many endurance athletes that truly neglect strength training with loaded weights, like with a relatively heavy resistance going in and picking up like five pound dumbbells and doing, you know, some endurance work like that is not strength training. And when you get on your bike, if you're just doing endurance riding, you're actually still, again, not really doing anything for your muscular strength. So I do believe that there's uh, a level of work that should be done in the gym um, and in preparation for any given type of training program. If you don't have that requisite uh, musculoskeletal strength buildup from some sort of gym work strength training, you're not going to be as well prepared to be able to tolerate the stresses that we can then generate on the bike with some of the big gear work. So caveat, if you haven't done the gym work, well, this might be too much for you. You got to gotta make sure you're properly prepared. And so in that case, if I've got somebody who has potentially some limitations, then they can't do that kind of gym work for, for various reasons, then we're going to have to kind of titrate things down a little bit and water it down and go more at 70 RPM rather than the 50 or 40 or 50 RPM, like uh, a, a stronger person that doesn't have any limitations could tolerate and handle. So 
if you do have some of those limitations, yes, more is not better. You might have to, to back things off and do things a little bit differently. Um, and that's, uh, again, the, the seated component versus the standing, those, those joint compressive forces are a little bit less when you're seated versus when you're standing. So uh, that, that could be something to consider there. I'm really glad you brought that up because that is an important disclaimer. I, I won't give my athletes this sort of work until I've had them in the weight room and make sure they have that joint stability. And I always tell them, if you do the big gear work and you start feeling pain in your knees, stop. Mm -hmm. and, yep, exactly. Stop that session. Go back to a normal cadence. Or if we're doing you know, a sustained effort and, again, you're getting any kind of a joint pain, back that off and, and just go to a normal cadence. And if it still is an issue, then uh, end that session early. Here's where the, the competitive person inside of you comes out. You got 60 seconds to uh, uh, sort of give the most important take home message from this episode. What take it away? Big gear work is an important part of uh, stressing the body to elicit responses that will allow you to be the best and strongest and most capable cyclist you can be. You need to have appropriate gym work uh, set up so that you can tolerate the kind of loads that can be generated then in the big gear work on the bike. I tend to look first then at recruiting at a high level force, short efforts, progressively moving into longer duration at a little bit lower intensity. And then I'll often come back up to kind of a, a VO2 max type of uh, power output at a lower cadence and all of those things, we're going to do much more of it in a seated position for the most part, other than those standing start type of efforts. And uh, if it hurts, stop doing it. Guess about all I got. <laughs> Very good. That's a great overview of everything we've talked about. Trevor, what would you add? I was going to say that might be all you got, but that was pretty much summarizing all of it. So I'm not sure what to add to this. Uh, I guess the thing I would add is... So again, there wasn't a ton of research back in this just because they haven't done a ton of research. But I think this is a case where athletes and coaches have found something that's very beneficial. And I think that if you just go out and train normally and just do time on the bike, you can only get so far. You have to find these things that take you a little bit further. And I always like to think about train both ends. So spend time doing much lower cadence than your normal also spend time doing higher cadence than your normal. And I think th those are places you're going to see gains that you wouldn't see from just going out and riding and not thinking about cadence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to add to that, and this can be my one minute, is the the low cadence, high torque stuff just extends the range at which you're a, a capable rider in a way. And it helps you build uh, that uh, that durability uh, or just the, the ability to produce power over a, a, a larger range or so it, it it feels and there's some evidence to suggest it and there's reasons why so just a little bit of this can can go a long way I think too thanks again Neil Henderson for uh, joining us on fast talk it's been a pleasure thank you guys appreciate it That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone. Send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Neil Henderson, Jim Miller, 
Sebastian Weber, Petter Back Coach, and Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.